Hi there, and welcome back to the Story of Software podcast. Today, we're going to talk about software and carbon capture. And we're joined by Levi Malat, who's VP of Engineering at Pachama. How are you doing, Levi? I am doing great. How are you? I'm doing really good. I'm really excited about this topic. So for our listeners, Levi is an engineer, an engineering leader. He's worked in some incredible companies like SpaceX, BetterUp, and now Pachama. He's currently VP of Engineering at Pachama, which is a company that uses AI and remote sensing to monitor and verify carbon capture by forests in order to help finance conservation and reforestation. So Levi, to start there, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the path that brought you to Pachama? Sure, yeah. Let's start at college. I went to school for computer science and mathematics. Ended up going straight into a PhD program for a couple of years. I contacted by SpaceX to go out there for a co-op, took a break from school, and then just ended up staying at SpaceX. Had a lot of fun, and I was learning a lot, working at a very impactful company. I decided to stay there, worked on the Falcon 9 rockets and the crew program that launched over the last couple of years, actually. Uh, wore a lot of different hats. Decided to move back to Missouri and work remotely for BetterUp, which is quite a domain shift into democratizing coaching. Then I was looking for something a little bit more in tune with trying to put software skills to, to help nature. Uh, I grew up in a really small town with 700 people. Nature was really at the forefront of really our daily lives. Internet was pretty slow to the rural parts of Missouri where I'm from. So I was fortunate to be on that edge of technology being developed. So moving back, actually the first year we moved back to Missouri, there was a, a lot of flooding. And over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of flooding in Missouri. So the impacts of climate change are really top of mind. And my kids were growing up and kind of saying like, man, we should do something to make sure that they have a, a place to live in the future. So I met with our CEO, Diego, and it was pretty easy to make the jump at that point after I started talking to him. So I joined Pachama January of 2020. The company was, I think, six people at the time. So it was a really exciting time to join the company. Awesome. And could you tell us a little bit about Pachama? So what the company does, what you do within the company, maybe even a little bit of backstory of how the company came about. Yeah, sure. So we are building a verified marketplace for carbon offsets. We fundamentally believe that uh, nature is going to be a very important part of fighting climate change. So our whole purpose is centered around of how do we restore nature to fight climate change. So the way we do that now is this verified marketplace where people can come to our website to purchase verified carbon offsets. Um, our role there is not just being a marketplace, but also a sort of additional layer of verification. So we're building technology with remote sensing, just means satellite images, LIDAR, radar, these different remote sensing techniques and machine learning to essentially have accountability over projects. So we can measure how much carbon is stored in forest projects and compare that with claims being made of, of how many carbon credits are issued. And then Pachama was founded back in 2008. Founders uh, Diego and Tomas are both from Argentina. Diego was on a trip with his brothers in, I think it was Peru. They went into the Amazon and just saw the level of deforestation that was happening. And he came away from that trip really dedicated to doing something to preserving Mother Earth. Eventually met Tomas, who has a, has a really strong background in machine learning. He was thinking about some ways of how we can apply technology and the level of like geospatial data access that we have now to doing something to benefit nature and climate. So 
from the meeting, Chama was born and it went through Y Combinator, came out of that seed round and here we are. Awesome. And could you tell us a little bit about your role in the company? Sure. Yeah. So I'm the VP of engineering. So I handle a lot of hiring the team aspect, make sure the team's organized and aligned on what we're building, helping set the strategy and direction, a lot of operations, bug fixing, the technical work as well. So kind of the urgent priority, I guess, dictates what typically I'm working on. Um, but going through, uh, we raised Series A earlier this year, so it's been a lot of hiring, onboarding new teams, communicating the vision and the mission, and getting everyone strategically aligned on what we're working on, and making sure we have an environment where they can come in and do their best work. Awesome. So I guess you know a lot of listeners are going to understand the importance of, of forestry vis-a-vis combating climate change. Could you tell us a little bit about I suppose, the lifetime of a tree or a forest and how carbon absorption capabilities evolve? Yeah. So I, I think it's useful to, to think with respect to carbon markets, there's three different types of forest projects. So there's reforestation, conservation, and then improved forest management. So we'll start at reforestation because it kind of covers the entire life cycle of a tree. Uh, and then we can talk about some of the other ones as well. So I guess to start, you know, you have a seed then you have a sapling grown in nurseries. So say there's some area of land that's going to go through the starting a reforestation project. The first step of that is get saplings growing in a nursery environment uh, so that you can kind of monitor and make sure they have enough plants. Then there'll be a planting season, like say in Brazil, it's November for the forest project that we're working on right now. So, you know, coming up, they'll move from nurseries and there will actually be people taking those saplings and putting them into the ground. After that, they mature into young trees. So the growth of a tree from sapling to like a young tree is pretty slow. So typically, you don't see the really accelerated growth of trees until year five plus. And then years five through, I think, 30, that's where you see a lot of the accelerated growth of trees. And at some point, it'll taper off and they'll kind of hit their adult like maximum height. Then they can mature into old growth forest. So old growth is classified as 140 years plus. So uh, through that, if you think about it, the younger trees have really high carbon sequestration rates. And then that tapers off over time as the trees grow and they're not putting as much growth into, into the height. But those older trees are the ones that have most of the carbon stored in them. So I think every reforestation project eventually becomes a conservation effort at some point uh, because we want to protect the carbon that's stored in these trees to prevent that from coming back out into the atmosphere uh, as emissions. So along each one of those stages, you essentially have a failure rate. You know, not all seeds are going to get converted into saplings. Not all of the saplings planted are going to live. Uh, some of them just like won't take, especially if you're looking at like non-native tree species being planted in some areas. And then through each of the various stages, at any point, there's, there may be a harvesting rate if it's an improved forest management project, or just failure rates like there could be a natural disaster that comes through and wipes out part of the forest, or uh, there could be illicit deforestation. Uh, at every point, there's some sort of failure rate, so not all of your seeds end up to old growth forest. Part of it's healthy. Forests will go through a stage in their life cycle where they, they go through a natural thinning process where some of the trees just don't make it to, like, say, the crown to get sufficient sun and they die off, but they eventually decompose and that essentially becomes biomass and fertilizer for the other trees. So part of that's natural. 
Leva, can I just ask a question in terms of the kind of reforestation initiatives? So you were mentioning that really the main growth phases of trees can be kind of years five to 30 and thereafter things can taper a little bit. Um, if you harvest those trees, let's say for wood, for, you know, as a sustainable building material, does all the carbon that's been captured and stored start to seep out again? Not all of it, but some certainly will. It depends on what the end product is. So, for example, if that wood is going into building materials like two by fours or furniture, even that still exists as a stable wood product, and that carbon still stays in it as long as that furniture, that building is. But certainly, there's going to be parts of the tree that are not, you know, as it's being milled into furniture, some of that tree is going to be discarded. So, whatever's not stored into the end product would end up back as emissions. Paper products, like toilet paper, paper in general, cardboard, those typically end up straight as emissions just because they're short-term products. Okay. Another question I have is you, you mentioned there's reforestation, conservation, and forestry improvement. I guess when you consider reforestation, is that generally projects on land where there had recently been forest until you know maybe it was cleared for lumber, etc.? Do you think of reforestation and afforestation in the same way? Like if you were to take, let's say, just land that isn't suitable for agricultural purposes and started planting trees there where there maybe never had been forest, or at least not for a very long time, are those types of projects worth looking at from your perspective? I think it depends. You know, I'm not a forest scientist, so I can't speak to kind of like the viability of those projects in general. But typically where we see a lot of reforestation projects, lands that are converting agricultural use and then converting some of that land back to forests. You know, one of the projects that we're starting, Quarters for Life, the land used to be mostly forested and then over time they kind of adopted to agricultural and cattle use. So there's these pockets of native forests still standing and what they want to do is essentially plant between these different pockets of forests so they can keep reproducing and surviving as a species themselves. So as far as converting some land that may not have had a forest on it into a forest. I'm not sure like what specifically the advantages or challenges of that would be. Uh, as a rule of thumb, I think the more trees, the better. But obviously we have to also sustain our you know, species through agricultural development, food and food supply. Awesome. Could I ask you, are there any proven techniques for enhancing the carbon absorption of trees? That I'm not sure. I think it's probably easier to talk about what inhibits a tree from sequestering carbon. And I would say humans are probably like the biggest blockers to that more than anything. Trees grow pretty slowly, but they can be harvested quite quickly or a natural disaster coming through quite quickly. So I think one of our biggest contributions is getting out of the way and let trees grow and making sure that they have the space to grow over time. Again, because it takes five years to really accelerate growth rates for trees. So it is kind of a long-term investment you're making with allowing these trees to grow for the purpose of carbon sequestration. So I can't speak to the advantages of like fertilizers or other methods like that, but I think over time, the advantages of those are probably quite short-term compared to the long-term advantage of having trees grow to their full old growth capacity and then not cutting them down as much as possible. Some harvesting is still going to be you know, required as we do use wood products for a lot of different things. Just saying like, hey, we can't cut down any trees is, is unrealistic. But I think some of the things that are biggest blockers are like the human-driven deforestation. And those are things that we can control better. Like timber prices during COVID spiked because a lot of the sawmills shut down and then 
once things started opening back up, there was a shortage of lumber. So whatever systems we put in place to incentivize people to not cut down trees, we want to make sure it can survive these short-term shocks to the system, like a spike in timber prices. So I think taking the long view is, you know, how do we design these durable systems that will survive past our lifetimes that help set up future generations for success and I guess, acknowledge the value of what trees are doing and their role in climate. Levi, I guess one of the big challenges now is to accurately measure how much carbon is being captured by these types of forestry initiatives. Would you be able to speak about the steps that Pacham has taken in this regard and maybe some of the challenges around doing that type of carbon capture measurement? Yeah, I love this topic because this is really the bread and butter of what we're trying to do with the technology side. So maybe I'll start with the current state of how biomass in a forest is measured right now. So how much carbon is in a forest is what we care about in terms of carbon markets and uh, carbon offsets. So I'll start with that. For a forest project that's with an existing registry, there's going to be a verification. And this surveyor is going out and taking measurements of the diameter of the tree and the height of the tree. And then based off those measurements, they feed those into allometric equations. And then you essentially get an estimate of the biomass as an output. Under this approach, scale is very difficult. You're talking about, say, you want to go measure every tree in a forest. You know, if you have a forest of sufficient size, it's going to take a long time or a lot of people to actually go do that. So typically, this verification of the sampling, and then you extrapolate out carbon stored in that project. And that's what's used, essentially, that number is used to issue carbon offsets. And then that project developer can sell those offsets to businesses. And those can be retired as part of a sustainability strategy. So because of that process, those verification events usually take place years apart as well, just because it requires human effort to go do that, especially for conservation projects. Conservation projects are typically much bigger than a deforestation project because it's procuring land and then kind of protecting it from deforestation. So the areas are typically larger. So the objective we have is to quantify biomass faster, more accurately, and more frequently than humans can. So that implies kind of like a level of accuracy, scale, and frequency that we can't do otherwise. And the cool thing about that is then you kind of have like a heartbeat of the carbon storage of a forest over time. You know, if you can take frequent measurements, then you can start plotting that out and seeing its evolution over time. You can start, you know, answering some of those questions like, hey, we did this project and did something different on the saplings that were planted to help grow. And you can maybe see a difference in the biomass over that project versus another one. So essentially what we're building is, you know, using this remote sensing data and machine learning on top of it to build a biomass instrument. And I think scientific instruments around like precision, tolerance, saturation. So some of these challenges are, you know, you still need something for supervised machine learning. You're providing labels like, hey, this plot of land, it has this much biomass stored on it. And then what machine learning is doing is trying to identify that relation from that input data over time to what those biomass measurements are. Um, you need multiple data sources. Images alone, you can get kind of colors and shapes out of images, but you don't get a lot of information like tree height or these kind of volumetric properties around trees that are important for understanding how much carbon is actually stored in the tree. So LIDAR, which is using a light sensor essentially to get a 3D representation of anything, but we use it for trees. Radar, which can penetrate a little bit more through canopies. But the challenge is all those data sources need to overlap in time and in space. You know, because if you have an image from say 2014, 
and then your LiDAR measurement isn't from 2018. Well, from 2014, 2018, maybe there was like some trees that were cut down. It's going to be hard to align those things if there was changes in the landscape over time. Another one is we need to understand the uncertainty of the measurements being made. So was our confidence in terms of a plus or minus of any measurement coming out of our biomass instruments? So we can say within this project or within this region, there's this much biomass stored and the plus or minus on it is say 10 tons per hectare with a 95% confidence. Without that, it's hard to understand if your measurements you're making are even valid with the region. So some of the early approaches of models that we build are regionally specific. So you need to understand, you know, hey, if I train something, it's like forest data from New England, I can't go apply that to forests in the Amazon. There are different types of forests. Ultimately, we can have one model that can apply to any forest, but that's kind of an ongoing research objective. You need lots of data and you need it frequently. So there's kind of obvious like data storage challenges, but and processing challenges that we're building quite sophisticated infrastructure to ingest, categorize, access, and process that amount of data. So we can actually do these things frequently. Again, trees grow slow, but they disappear quite quickly. To use an electrical analogy is like batteries versus capacitors. Batteries you know, take a long time to charge, but they power, say, your iPhone for quite a while. Capacitor is almost the same, but it can discharge almost instantly. So you think about like a Kodak taking a picture and making that bright flash. That's a capacitor spending all its energy. Trees are kind of similar in that sense of like, you know, you cut it down or fire comes through, like that CO2 is released quite quickly. So frequency really matters. And, and this is an interesting challenge too, because things like clouds become a problem. You know, if you're looking at images and you need to make a measurement on a weekly basis. Getting images without clouds in them is something you can't control, but you have to account for it. So things like that, how often you get cloud-free images can determine when you take measurements. But things like radar can penetrate clouds too, so you can get some information. So it's like the combination of these data sources to provide a more robust and accurate picture of like what's going on. The goal is like, you know, if we can confidently do this, we can estimate biomass and frequent basis cheaper than people do it. And you have this system you can deploy and make actions based off that. You can generate alerts like, hey, there's a wildfire near here, or hey, there's some observed deforestation going on, things like that. Levi, you touched on something very interesting there because I wanted to ask you whether there's any tech being developed either in Pachama or other initiatives to help identify at-risk forests in terms of fire or pestilence, because I guess we're all seeing a lot of forest fires in the news over the past couple of months. And I suppose a significant risk for these carbon offset projects would be fire and fire and pestilence. So are there initiatives being taken in this, in this area? Yeah, especially when you start thinking about one of the things we do as part of listing projects onto our marketplace is really evaluating a project. Part of that is assessing risk. So I think one that always jumps into people's mind is wildfire, natural disaster, wildfires in particular. So it depends on the project, but within the U.S., there's some pretty cool tools that they have so you can understand essentially like probability of fire over time. One of the tools is called FSIM. And by running those on projects, you get some sort of characterization of like, what's the risk of this project? Um, kind of interesting that a lot of it comes down to like vegetation buildup. 
you know, hundreds of years ago, Native communities would, and even in South America, this still goes on today, is controlled fires to eliminate a lot of the vegetation. In the U.S., I think it was back in the early 1900s, there was a real big push to kind of treat like nature as pristine and unmanaged. But the understory there is mega fires now that we see. But as far as like a technological approach to like preventing that and stuff, I think that's a little bit more difficult because again, like images, you can't penetrate through the canopy necessarily. With LIDAR, you could. So that might be an interesting thing to, to start playing with and seeing like we separate the biomass essentially on the floor of the forest versus that of trees as a way to characterize potential fuel for some of these big fires. But yeah, the machine learning models we're building right now are not focused on that. We rely on other third-party sources for some of that data. Levi, the, the final question I have for you is, um, what do you see happening next in this space uh, when we consider the interface of technology and forestry? Yeah, I think we're really just at the beginning. The IPCC climate report came out pretty recently and painted a pretty dark picture of, of where we're heading. And I think forests are going to be a pretty large part of, you know, there's going to be a lot of a lot of different solutions needed to really take on climate change and a lot of behavioral change and a lot of policy changes and things. But I think forest and nature-based solutions are going to be continue to be a big part of the picture towards how we approach climate change. And I think our application of technology to forests is we're just at the beginning. I know NASA has experimented with uh, space-borne LIDAR. So typically to get LIDAR measurements, which are the highest accuracy measurements we can make over any landmass, typically those are deployed by drone. It can be quite expensive, but the mission is called JEDI. It's a LIDAR sensor that's flying the space station. So you get essentially free LIDAR measurements over... So I think space-borne LIDAR is going to be an interesting development in the future. Better sensors being deployed into space. But I think one interesting thing I've seen is the, the cost of LIDAR acquisition dropping quite significantly. Like even some of the new iPhones have LIDAR sensors on them now. I think part of that was motivated by its use in self-driving cars. But now we're seeing the benefits cross over to either consumer applications and phones into satellite sensors. So, you know, I think penetration of smartphones into other countries is going to be another game changer. When you talk about, hey, we can actually go videotape trees being planted, things like that. I think that'll continue to have useful impact on forest management and forest management in general and our ability to assess what's going on in the forest. So I'm pretty excited to see what all's going on. And you know, the venture capital world is continuing to to raise a lot of money for climate focused funds. So I think over the next five, 10 years, we're going to see some really cool companies come out with just some awesome technology, even if it's not related to forestry, but for the purpose of combating climate change, kind of rethinking how we equip ourselves and and tool ourselves for a better future. So our kids and grandkids have a place to call home. I agree wholeheartedly. I think we have a huge amount to be optimistic about, even though the, the warnings, as you say, in the IPCC report are quite stark. I think the uh, capacity for innovation and I think the, the will, the collective will towards innovation, I'm really starting to see it. So thank you for joining us today, Levi, and thank you for the great work you and your team are doing at Pachama. My pleasure. If you ever want me back, just let me know. Awesome. So production was by Albena Kristeva with editing by Adnan Tukar and music by Robert Cooney. Thank you for joining us on the Story of Software podcast. <laughs>